Hello and welcome back to Tales from Wisteria Lane, the podcast where we give you a fair view of all things Desperate Housewives. I'm Joel. I'm Billy Ray. And we wish you a happy 2024. Yes, welcome to 2024. May it be better than... We've said this every year. Yeah, may it be better than 2023. But anyway, today I will be doing the overview of the episode, which is season 7, episode 14, Flashback. And uh, B will be giving us the trivia, so do you have anything to start us off? Yeah. You know, this is probably the last year of Tales from Mysteria Lane, right? This will be the last year of Tales from Mysteria Lane. We'll finish season eight before. Yeah. And then we'll have to think of a new show to do. So this episode was written by Matt Berry, directed by Andrew Doerfer, and it first aired on the 13th of February, 2011, which means I would have been 16. That would have been your 16th birthday, yeah. Yeah, sweet 16. And you aired it on his birthday dinner. So on this week, the number one song was Grenade by Bruno Mars in the US, and it was Price Tag by Jesse J featuring B.O.B. in the UK. Ah, I remember Bob. I like Price Tag. That's a good song. Price Tag was a good song. That was a good time for music. So on Monday the 7th, the Laureus World Sports Awards were held at Emirates Place in Abu Dhabi, with winners including Rafael Nadal for Sportsman, Lindsay Vonn for Sportswoman, and the Spanish men's national football team for Sports Team. Okay. On Wednesday the 9th, Latvia left a deep recession with an annualised growth of 3.7% in the last quarter of 2010. So good for them. Woo, well done Latvia. And Nicki Minaj's Pink Friday album reached number one on the Billboard 200 on its 11th week on the chart. Pink Friday's out now, guys. Give it up for Pink Friday. (laughs) On Thursday the 10th of February was the 61st Berlin International Film Festival. A movie called A Separation won the Golden Bear Award. I don't know what that is. Nor do I. On Sunday the 13th, and the final day of this week, was the 53rd Grammy Awards. The song Need You Now, as well as artists including Esperanza Spaulding, Lady Gaga, Usher, and Jeff Beck won various awards. Also on the same day, apparently, this is weird, was the 64th British Academy Film Awards, or the BAFTAs if you fancy. These were held, and The King's Speech won Best Film, as well as David Fincher won in Best Director. Oh, so it was the Grammys and the BAFTAs? Apparently. At the same time. That seems odd. That does seem odd. Surely half of the people... That means people would have had to have picked. I guess so. The title of the episode comes from a song of the same name in the Stephen Sondheim musical Passion. Okay. When Paul gets out of his car to speak with Mike, the address on the building behind him is 10110. In Little Indian binary, the number converts to the unlucky number of 13. Oh. The character of Frank is killed off in this episode, marking the first death of a character this season, which is weird. It's wild. That's 14 episodes about a death. Thus, this is the longest span of episodes the show has ever featured in a season without a character dying. Is it really? Yeah, so from the... <laughs> so apparently 14 yeah, episodes yeah. is the longest span when no one has died from the oh. start of a season. How depressing. Jesus. <laughs> and that's all my trivia. Okay, so let's get started. Previously on Desperate Housewives, Lynette's mother is marrying an old douchebag, which she's having problems with. Susan began dialysis and met and possibly made a new friend. Bree decided to keep Keith's child from him by paying the mother off. Gabby and Carlos were held at gunpoint and she lost her doll, whatever her name is, I've forgotten the doll's name. Princess Valerie. Valerie. Princess Valerie. And so now that's left Gabby messed up. In a state. Yeah. And Paul seems to know who owns the gun that shot him, but we don't yet. No, although they hinted it was Zach. How did they hint it was Zach? Well, because Zach came back onto the lane and he was dressed up and stuff. Oh, yeah, that was true. That is true, yes. So, we do know it was Zach, actually, because we saw him dressed as the person that dropped off at Breeze. Mm. We'll start with Bree, because honestly, I kind of don't care about her story. It's very short. Her story is also really boring. It's a bit sad. So, Keith is bringing a pizza home and Amber is watching from afar. 
Inside, Brie gets a call from Amber who needs to talk to her and she heads out to meet her, leaving Keith to eat his pizza whilst he sort of slags off the cooking that Brie was going to be doing, which was salmon. Yeah, gr- uh, grilled or fried salmon. Either way, I'd rather have the salmon. Yeah, me too. Pizza's trash compared to salmon. Salmon's god-tier fish. Mm. Outside, she goes to meet Amber, who tells Brie that her check will take five days to clear and so she needs a cashier's check instead so she can pay some bills. They agree to meet tomorrow and Amber then gives Brie a picture of Charlie to show Keith, just so he knows who his son is, even if he doesn't want to meet him. Well, Brie wasn't going to give you money in the first place, so did you not already have money to pay your bills? Well, no, Brie wasn't going to give her money, but she would have been reliant on Keith paying child support. Okay. To cover her bills, which wouldn't have gone mm. into effect so quickly. Yeah. I think that she, she's, as soon as she got a bit of money, she's like, I'm going to try some stuff. Well, yeah, I was literally going to say, this feels dodgy from Amber's, like, f- for Amber. From my, my point of view, I'm like, oh, Amber's giving red flag vibes right now. Yeah, true. But you know what? I would kind of, I'd probably do the same thing. I'm not going to lie. Bree's the innocent, well, I say, from, from Amber's perspective, Bree's the innocent one in this. Yeah. Like, Amber doesn't know that Bree's lying. We do, but Amber doesn't. So, you know, Amber's just mugging off an innocent old lady. <laughs> yeah. Well, not old lady. Bree's not old, but... Yeah, but I wouldn't do... Th- I can't say I wouldn't do the same thing. Yeah, that's because you're a villain. <laughs> Look at this posh, middle-upper-class middle, class, middle upper class woman. Like, I'm going to get me some. Look at her house. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Bree meets Amber the next day, who also brought Charlie, along with her, to some dingy pizza place to hand over the cheque. Charlie refuses to leave because he hasn't finished the pizza he is nibbling on. And so Amber decides to run to the bank and ask Bree to watch him. Charlie then doesn't even carry on eating the pizza. Bree starts a conversation with Charlie in like an awkward fashion. And then Charlie's like, I'm going to go play games. And I'm like, bitch, you didn't want to leave because you want to nibble on that pizza. Yeah, and Bree seems a bit frustrated about that. She's like, oh, he'd rather play games than converse. Or conversate, as some people say. Just say talk. <laughs> Although... I don't think you'd have much to talk about anyway, Brie. No, there's a bit of an age gap. But then again, she found a way to talk to Keith. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're not too Zing. far off an age. <laughs> Charlie is playing games and Brie is waiting for Amber and Keith comes strolling in, recognising her car outside the pizza place. He runs in, believing that he always knew she was a closet pizza lover and she goes to get rid of him. But Charlie comes running up, asking Brie for money, like mother like son. Yeah. Honestly, yeah. like I swear. That's a funny connection. Like, bitch, haven't I given your mother enough? And he comes up and he's like, I'm out of quarters. Okay, good for you. It's Keith implying that everyone that doesn't like pizza actually does like pizza? Yeah. My mum doesn't like pizza. But does she really like pizza? No. Is she a closet pizza lover? She's not, no. And she also doesn't like pasta. I think she's just got it in for Italians. Well, my dad doesn't like pasta either. Yeah. Which I always think is weird. I think it's weird as well. How can you not like pasta? Like, people that don't like pizza pasta or rice it gets to the point where i'm like but then what do you eat like what's left after a roast dinner exactly white people (laughs) i swear white people (laughs) he then like brie basically says she doesn't have any money probably because she's just giving it all to the kid's mum. and so he just blatantly turns to keith and goes have you got any quarters like (laughs) yeah what about you (laughs) bitch this is a stranger to you like i know you've seen brie and your mum conversate but this dude is a stranger to you has your mum taught you nothing were you raised in a barn yeah, they don't seem like the kind of... Well, you wouldn't think that they're, kind of, they're the kind of people that would grow up just asking for money from anyone. But then again, she did just do that to Brie. Keith goes and plays some games with Charlie and they get along and Brie then starts to feel guilt again. So she's probably going to go home and attack some more rose bushes. This one is more serious because she's actually seeing what Keith is like interacting with his son. His own son, yeah. Which he's not aware of. And she feels terrible. As she should. As she bloody well should. In the final scene, Brie is watching Keith watch football, which is probably the most boring sentence I've ever had to say, because even watching football is dull. So watching someone watch someone watch football (laughs) is just dull. She then walks over and gives him a photo of Charlie and tells him that it's his son. 
But I do love that he's like, why are you showing me a picture of that kid from the pizza place? Yeah, that's literally <laughs> verbatim, Keith, right there. That's like, like, what why, a great line. Why are you showing me the picture of the kid from the pizza place? <laughs> yeah, like, did you just take a picture of the kid in the pizza place and print it off? <laughs> anyway, so, I think God. it's good. I think it's fair to say that this relationship is probably coming to a close. Yeah, it's not going much further, I don't think. So that was Bree's story. That the episode itself actually starts with Paul going to visit Zach's mansion, but it's been foreclosed on. So Paul then goes to the one other person who he knows will be willing to help, which is Mike. He claims he doesn't know where Zach is, but wouldn't really tell Paul even if he did. And then Paul announces that Zach is the one that shot him, but he isn't interested in getting the police involved because he wants to keep this in the house. Yeah, well, mm, yeah, this is odd. Mm. He's like, I want to keep it in the family. And he's also it's like, I'm very disappointed but this is a police matter. Well, yeah. The guy shot you. So Mike tells Paul that Zach was last seen in Idaho, but Paul wants Zach to know how disappointed he is. So once Paul goes, Mike then tries to call Zach, but Zach's not really in the mood to talk to anybody at that moment. No, he's not looking good. Mary Alice opens this episode as well, saying that he seeks help from the man who hates him. And I was like, can you be a bit more clear? Like, who are you talking about? Every man hates him right now. Thank God that they showed us him going to Mike. Otherwise, I would have been like, well, that could be anyone. Yeah, true. He also, Mary Alice also says that Zach got lost in fast women. Yeah, I and don't hard I don't, drugs. And I'm like fast women. I know what she's probably saying, which is like slutty women, like yeah, like loose women or women that will open their legs for money. Yeah, you know, sex workers and stuff like that. But just the wording of fast women. She's so judgy for a dead woman, right? Although Isn't she, you'd have to be fast around Zach Young. Yeah, like just to get away. But. Overall, this scene has shown that Mike does really know where Zach is and has the means of communication with him, mm-hmm. which is odd because, well, how long has he been able to actually talk to his biological son? Not that we've ever seen. Not that we've seen, no. Uh, so next scene, Mike is laying in bed thinking about the last time we saw Zach and we get a little bit of a flashback of when Mike was low on money. Hence um, the episode title. Yeah. Unfortunately, everyone beat Mike to it and Zach is now broke and also a little bit loopy and he kind of wants to downsize and minimize his carbon footprint and stuff. So Mike did originally go there for money. Yes. That's kind of sad. I think it, it's it's not specifically stated, but I think it's kind of implied, isn't it, really? Yeah, because even Zach was saying about how he's probably come for money, but mm. he's too late because he's already given everything he has away. And I was like, that's really sad that the first thing you assume for your biological dad visiting you is that he's there for money. And it's even sad that it's true. Yeah, well, Mike doesn't say yes or no. Like, he doesn't deny it. All that Mike says to Zach is, I'm sorry to hear about that or something like that. And so he tells Zach just how bad things have got, letting slip that they actually rented out the house to Paul, which takes Zach by surprise as he's got no idea his dad had even been released from jail. And so he gets all jittery and then he kind of asks Mike to leave. Yeah, which was, that didn't sit very well with little Zach, did it? No, Zach didn't take that very well. He kind of, that, that kind of pushed him over the edge a little bit. And he asked, he, but he politely asked Mike to leave. Well, it's because his dad wasn't particularly nice to him. I don't think Paul did anything particularly illegal to Zach, but him being in prison probably felt like karmic retribution or justice. Yeah, I think Zach got along quite well with his mum, but maybe not so much his dad. And that's probably because Paul didn't really want Zach. And he kept him drugged up in a bedroom. That is true. So Mike comes back to visit Zach again, who's not living his best life anymore. And as Mike lets himself in, Zach runs at him with a knife until he realises it's, you know, his bio dad. And I must say, I love Cody Cash and I love James Denton, but this was a badly acted moment. Yeah, um, I did write a note about this. I thought, I understand that he's on drugs and he's mentally unwell, but this scene was ridiculous. It was the speed. It wasn't fast-paced enough. So Mike lets himself into Zach's place. And then Zach comes running with the knife, but he doesn't come running with the knife. He just kind of quick walks with yeah. the knife. But he's not looking at 
Mike, he's kind of like looking around, almost like he's he's not really aware of where he is. But then it takes a second for Mike to go, well, wait, Zach, it's me. Yeah, I, I think it was the timing and the acting that made the scene seem ridiculous to me. I think if it was a bit quicker and it was like a reaction thing from Zach, I'd be like, okay, I understand. But because he was so slow, it's like, did you not hear him? It landed too comedic <laughs> for what I think they were going for, in my opinion. Comedic, but not in a good way. Yeah. So Zach is jumpy and shifty and Mike tells him that Paul believes that he is the one that shot him, which eventually Zach admits to it, getting upset at how Paul got clean slate, which he didn't really believe was fair. So I shot my dad. So what? Right. He admits everything to Mike, you know, shooting him, freaking out, hiding the gun at Breeze. He then tells Mike he isn't using drugs, which is clearly BS. And then Mike offers to get him into rehab, but Zach believes it's too late for him to step up and be a doting daddy, blaming Mike for the fact that he was raised by Paul before kicking him out of the house again. Yeah, and Mike knows what being on drugs looks like. He's experienced that, so you can't yeah. lie to him about that. No, and also it's Mike does tell Zach, you know, that's that's not how it worked. Like it I didn't allow you to go and live with your dad. Like Mike didn't even know about Zach for yeah. a while. So it, But he's yeah. having a pity party, he so is... he doesn't want to hear it. Oh no, of course not. He's definitely having a pity party. So finally, Mike pulls up to Paul slash his place and then tells him to get in, loser. And then he admits to knowing where Zach has been the entire time, but he's been holding the information from Paul as he wasn't sure if Paul could be trusted to behave rationally, which is a fair statement. Well, yeah, he's not been the most rational guy so far this season. <laughs> this season, this show. Yeah, yeah. And this is not a duo that you'd expect to see. No, absolutely not. In fact, it's probably the most unlikely duo the show's had so far. But I do kind of love it. Yeah. Now that Mike has seen what Zach has become, he kind of feels like he needs Paul in order to help Zach get better. I'm not sure if that's a good idea, but we'll see. The two of them coming together could sort of rattle Zach back to some sort of sense of normality a little bit. Enough for him to admit that he needs to get some help anyway. It could be like, you two working together? Jesus, okay. Hopefully. I'm clearly fucked. Yeah, hopefully. But that is the Paul and Mike storyline. Lynette is visiting Mummy, who is bragging about all of the gifts that Frank is giving her, you know, things that dead wives or exes once owned. Stella tells Lynette that Frank wants the whole family over on Saturday so he can take a family photo to rub it in the faces of the families that have disowned him, but Lynette tells them both that Saturdays just aren't good, what with such a big family. Mm -hmm. Frank tries to bribe Lynette, who still refuses, and so Stella gets rid of Frank so she can be Frank with Lynette and tell her that as Frank is now in the process of redoing his will, they all need to play ball so that they can be included. But again, Lynette refuses, but does compromise telling her mum that they can come to them. Yeah, which I think is fair. And I really relate to Lynette in this moment because I think I'm a bit like that where I can see the long-term benefits of things. But if someone's annoying me in the moment, I find it really hard not to be myself about that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I understand what she means where it's like, you're the one that married him. I'm not going to bend over backwards for you, but we can do this. No, of course. I'd be exactly the same as Lynette. I'd be like, fine, I'm not looking to be in this man's will you're looking to be in this man's will. I'm looking to be in your will. <laughs> yeah. Okay? So I ain't pleasing him. <laughs> so Tom is setting up the camera and Stella and Frank arrive and she lets them in and Frank is immediately Frank. <laughs> it's not the Asian hate or the sexism that's funny though. What? It's the shot of the family's reaction and the silence to what he said that's hilarious. I understood the sexism and the racism. I just didn't understand what slow as soy sauce going up a hill in winter even mean i don't know what that means and it really confused me but it's just old racist frank what can you say <laughs> that means they're a slow driver with some asian hate peppered in there mm. because people always say asian drivers are bad mm. and so then lynette ends the small talk and they get ready for the photo but frank is apparently a closet interior designer and begins rearranging the furniture yeah lynette being lynette goes to complain but then stella stops her and they all take their place and smile but frank had his eyes closed so they go to take it again but stella can't wake frank up He's dead. I, I want to say something that might sound controversial. What? 
I completely understand where Frank's coming from in this scene. When he said we should move this over there and take the photo here, I was like, it's rude, but he's correct. It does look better there. He's a photographer, so, you know. <laughs> taking the photo in front of the fireplace, it, it's nicer than taking the photo from in front of the sofa with, like, the stairs in the background and stuff. He's got a point. Yeah, but it doesn't matter. But it's the rudeness. It's the utter rudeness of it. It's the way that he said it, because if he suggested it, it would sound nice. Yeah, but instead he's like, no, I've driven all the way out to the middle of fucking nowhere to get to meet you guys i want the photo i want the my photo my way is what he says he, well it is his photo i don't care i know i know it's controversial I'm just saying. it absolutely is controversial <laughs> but yeah so we have a clip <laughs> you want me to keep him here like that all night if we call the coroner now i get nothing if we call in the morning millions I didn't want Frank in my house when he was alive. Now you want me to hang out with his corpse? Well, I'll throw a sheet over him and spray a little air freshener. You won't even notice. Frank wanted me to have that money. No, it's too weird. You wouldn't have to take care of me anymore. Uh, so, yeah, needless to say, Stella convinces Lynette to leave the body there for a few more hours. Yeah, she puts the phone right back down. And I just want to say, this is probably the weirdest comedy thing that's ever happened in this show for me so far. Like, this situation is insane. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But you know what? Fair. Also, so Frank dies. Is it okay to move the sofa back and take another picture before calling the coroner or even after calling the coroner so that you have something to do while waiting? Since we're all dressed up and there's a camera set up, like, is that okay? N- no, it's not okay. Because we're all dressed up. Because camera- he'll... Yeah, but you can't have the evidence. He'll be dead in the photo. No, you, you, you move him. Yeah, but his eyes will still be closed. No, you move him out of the photo. Oh. I mean, we're, we're waiting for the coroner to come. We're all dressed in our, I don't know, what Sunday best. No, you need to leave the body there. You can't move the body and then move it back. I just think we might as well get a nice photo while we're here. Well, it's not going to be a nice photo because someone's just died on that sofa. Oh, God. Why, why does no one ever see things my way? <laughs> because your way is weird. <laughs> so, in the middle of the night, Tom is downstairs staring at Frank, who is covered by a sheet, I will say. Uh, Lynette sneaks down and makes him jump and then she kind of ponders on how you become Frank like the lonely old guy with no real family that cares that you're dead and then they blame it on money and how it changes people yeah considering the circumstances they were taking their photo because none of his family talked to him yeah which is really sad yeah also is it really much of a is there much of a question Lynette she's like how does this happen how'd you end up like this could it be because he was just the worst yeah he was an awful person he was the worst person in the world yeah The coroner comes over the next morning to collect Frank's body and they all lie, telling him that he came downstairs in the early hours of the morning to watch TV and then they found him when they woke up, leading the coroner to put the time of death as sort of the early, middle a.m. Score. Yeah. Meaning that Stella is now rich. Yep. Stella starts to celebrate by offering the Scarves anything they want because she's now a millionaire, but Lynette puts her foot down and demands that her family give Frank some respect. Why? Which doesn't last long because he's still a dead person. Oh, Lynette, don't be so judgy. He was horrible and he's dead and you have money. Let's get some stuff. No, I'm with Lynette. He's <laughs> a dead person. You've got children here. Like, you teach them a responsibility to show respect. That's true. There are children here. So Stella and Porter, or Preston, uh, come back from shopping and she's been spending her millions and she gives Lynette a $2,200 necklace without even batting an eyelid at the damage. Yeah, I have too much past poor person mentality to ever spend so much money in one day even if i instantly became richer than i ever thought i would ever be i wouldn't be able to buy something that that much that's that expensive about thinking about it i'd be like what if i need it in the future maybe i should put it away well that's the thing like we as people that have struggled with money 
if we suddenly find ourselves with it, we are a lot more careful than those that have always had money. And yet Stella's walking around thinking that she comes from old money, looking like Corella Deville in a big fur coat. Yeah, she's she's giving um, Molly Brown in Titanic vibes. She really she's is. She's there like the Kathy Bates of Wisteria Lane. So Stella asks Lynette to change their dinner plans on Sunday, asking her to come to her place. But Lynette says that Sunday won't work as it's the night before school and, you know, Tom's got early meetings and blah, blah, blah. But Stella isn't listening and tells Lynette that she'll see her then. So Lynette <laughs> puts her foot down. Stella tells her that she would think Lynette would want to make it work, considering her involvement with the family. But if she can't, then Stella will invite one of Lynette's sisters instead. She's blackmailing them with her money. Yeah. And every time that Lynette suggests him, she goes, nah. <laughs> Literally, it's just, nah. But you know what? That was just Stella. Yeah. That this is just Stella with money now. Like, mm. she hasn't really changed that much. But Lynette, don't have it. No, don't have it at all. Absolutely not. I'd be like, you know what? Invite one of the sisters and then leave them in the will and not me because, you know, they were the ones that were there for you the entire time, even when you were poor. Yeah. But that is Lynette's story. But let's move on to Gabby. So Gabby is at therapy, bragging about her amazing life, telling stories about sex with Mick Jagger, uh, while the therapist is trying to get her to open up. It's quite a funny shot, though, because you only see Gabby when she's telling it. And it's like, is she with friends? Who is she talking to? Like, And then it cuts to this therapist. <laughs> she notices that Gabby doesn't really seem to like talking about her childhood. But Gabby doesn't see the point because the past is the past. The therapist is really trying, but Gabby's basically giving her nothing. And so she returns home and tells Carlos how much she loves therapy. And he asks what they spoke about, but she tells him that's confidential. And so then she goes on and says about how she's going to be going to therapy three times a week, which means that he has to take over her carpool. He has to give up golf. Otherwise, she won't get better. But Carlos, although moaning a little bit, will do it for the sake of Gabby. This, yeah. this episode isn't really a bad episode for Carlos. Surprisingly, no. Surprisingly. Although Carl- I will give him his dues there because, oh, although, you know, I don't like him. Although Carlos has created or helped to create the issue that we are now seeing with Gabby, he's now kind of all on board with helping to fix it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even the beginning of this this next scene, Carlos at home doing laundry. Laundry. <laughs> Carlos doing housework. Uh, when the phone rings to confirm Gabby is still up for her appointment. And Carlos tells them that she's on their way. And then it comes out that it's actually a spa appointment that Gabby's got and not therapy. And so now Carlos knows that Gabby hasn't been returning to therapy. She's just been lying. Probably covers up that question in the back of his mind. Like, why does she love therapy so much? This is weird. Yeah, because, oh yeah, in the previous scene, it's, what, it's I swear, it's like one of the famous Desperate Housewife quotes. It's like, I love therapy. It's like a talk show where I'm the guest and the only topic is me. Yeah. <laughs> So at the spa place, Gabby is getting her massage, but the masseuse doesn't really seem to be doing very well because it's in fact Carlos who's here to call out Gabby for the lying. Yes, and it gives the same energy as Phoebe pretending to be a Swedish masseuse called Ikea. (laughs) It absolutely is Ikea. (laughs) Yeah, it's very that. (laughs) Gabby doesn't think she needs therapy and what she is doing here is actually working because in her mind, this is a form of therapy. I feel like the people that really need therapy the most never think they need therapy. No, it's always the people that think they don't need therapy that actually are the ones that do. Carlos believes that actually all Gabby's doing is sort of masking the problem. And so he manages to convince her to go back to therapy and make another appointment a bit reluctantly. Yes. But he does. The next scene, Carlos is personally taking Gabby to her therapy session. She's trying anything to get out of it, but he isn't listening. And so they stop off so that Gabby can go to the bathroom first because we all know she's got the bladder the size of a dime. Yeah, it's it's awkward. I know I get what he's trying to do and it's very good. But also you kind of have to, you do have to want to go to therapy yourself. Oh, otherwise it won't work. It's like hypnotherapy. Hypnotherapy doesn't work unless you believe hypnotherapy works. Yeah. So mixed feelings with Carlos's methods here, but yeah. I don't blame him at all. She 
goes to the loo and throws her shit down and breaks out the bathroom window and gets onto the fire escape where Carlos was, is already there waiting for her. <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> Carlos knows Gabby so well, or at least he knows all of her negative and sneaky traits. Absolutely. So he was like, yeah. it probably also doesn't help that as soon as she went into the bathroom, she threw everything to the, like she threw she the coffee cup and then ran to the window. Yeah. You could like, hear that. You would have been able to hear that. So. Not very sneaky, Gabby. No. Uh, so he doesn't get why Gabby's fighting so hard on therapy when she clearly needs to speak to somebody but she admits that this therapist wants to discuss her childhood and that's not something that she is ready to face yet carlos tells gabby that maybe it is time to discuss her childhood with someone else who may actually be able to help as she's so clearly still struggling with it and so she gets a bit emotional and then asks carlos if he'll come with her which he does which is very sweet which is very sweet and we love to see it and we also find out in this scene that he's the only person she's told this to yes he does say like you you found the way to tell me which gabby does state that she only told carlos after they were married because not even the ladies know no in the therapist's office gabby opens up about why she has been hit so hard with her failure to help grace and that's because as a child she was never protected from her stepfather who essayed her yeah i I can't believe it's taken this long for this conversation of the stepfather to come up again considering that it was a season one it was mentioned in season one wasn't it like gabby's backstory very yeah, briefly by mary alice we were re-watching it f- to do this podcast and we were like oh my god it's actually mentioned really early on mm. whoa uh, and that ends gabby's story and then finally we move on to susan's so susan is talking to a doctor about donor list politics and there isn't a number but apparently it all comes down to dna and how long they've been waiting essentially but the likelihood is that she will be waiting at least three to four years haven't we already spoke about this why, mm. why is Susan talking to a doctor about this stuff right now? Is it just to get a beeper? Yes, essentially. Okay. Why didn't she just? Why wasn't she given one any, uh, sooner? Probably because they don't just have a whole collection of beepers on hand. But I would have thought that she'd have got that young kid's beeper, you know, from the previous episode. Either way, why didn't you just give her a beeper when she first came in? How hard is it to give a beeper to someone? I know. That can't be that hard to order in. So, but anyway, here's your beeper. Three to four working days. <laughs> yeah, well, three to four working years. <laughs> no, the beeper, not the kidney. <laughs> <laughs> so she gets her beeper. <laughs> as we've established and she leaves and bumps into an old school friend monroe carter monroe seems to be a bit of a creep from the get-go because he straight up is like you know i friended you on facebook like 12 times like dude i'm telling you right now guys if you request to follow someone on any form of social media and after a little while you don't hear anything your request is still there or all of a sudden you go i swear i i already asked to add you as a friend now it's asking me to add you as a friend again that means they've said no and there's a reason they've said no Mm, take a hint yeah so susan breaks down in tears on him he asks what's new and yeah she yeah, he's just like oh he reminds susan of who he is basically they went to high school together he sat behind her he helped edit the yearbook and now he sells pharmaceuticals and then he asks susan which also is a convenient explanation as to why he's wandering around the hospital hallways <laughs> but he then asks susan how she's doing and then she breaks down in tears instantly in classic susan fashion she i swear she has a habit of doing this yeah. she gets into a bad situation someone asks how she is so didn't this happen with her um wandering spleen yeah i think so <laughs> i think it's happened with a lot of things someone asked her how she was doing and she broke down because she just found out she had a wandering spleen and it could go careening into her heart see some of the ladies <laughs> they hold things in if brie had a kidney failure or a kidney transplant she'd be like oh i'm fine thank you for asking and then she'd walk away and hold it in silence Susan's the kind that just cries straight away if anyone asks. Well, they've all got their coping mechanisms. Brie would go to the shooting range. Yes. And she would take her anxiety or her stress out of the shooting range. Gabby, yeah. go shopping. Retail therapy. She does retail <laughs> therapy. Lynette 
I'm not sure what she would do. Yell at her kids? Yell at her kids, have a glass of wine. Yeah. You can say. Yeah. Susan is the only one that is so, has her emotions so much on her sleeve that actually all it takes is for someone to go, how you doing? You good? Yeah. And she'll just collapse on you. (laughs) Yeah. So (laughs) next scene, Susan comes running into the hospital because her beeper went off. A little confused as to why she's got a kidney so soon, believing it mustn't be real. Yeah, because her her beeper goes off after like a couple of weeks of her even having the the surgery. Like that's just typical Susan privilege. Yeah, I know. It's literal privilege right there. Susan's there like, oh, oh, little old me. I got it so soon. Main character syndrome. This, like, this could be any random kidney and then Susan's suddenly better because of the writers got lazy and I would still be like, oh my God, this is just so typical of Susan. Yeah, I know. <laughs> The writers could literally be like, wow, we really wrote ourselves into a corner here. We really can't commit to four years of dialysis with Susan. What's she going to do? Oh, just give her a kidney. kidney. Someone dies and she's the only blood type around. I don't know. (laughs) Give them a sad backstory that Susan in the next episode can look into because she wants to know more about her donor. Dick is going to be pissed. Dick will be pissed. <laughs> Dick is going to be like, what? It's been years <laughs> for me. sat in the room next door fucking on playing Scrabble on his phone still. Yep. <laughs> so the doctor tells Susan it's actually someone she knows, which is why she's got a kidney so soon. And after her initial shock at getting a man kidney. I'm getting a man kidney. <laughs> I'm getting a man kidney. <laughs> now that I'm complaining. She follows the doctor to see who it is. And it's Monroe. <laughs> Yeah, the guy who she didn't even want to be a friend with on Facebook. I know. But she'll happily accept his kidney. Mm. Susan is, again, confused, this time because of why he would do this, considering that she barely remembered him, but Monroe is doing it because he remembers her and how wonderful she was back to him in high school. They hug it out, and Monroe is very happy to hear that he's made Susan happy. Yeah, and it's it's a bit creepy because it's one of those things where it's the sad, lonely person who you don't feel sorry for because they are genuinely a creep. And someone did like one nice thing for them in school and it just stuck. Like she, It's not like she would have dove in front of him and sacrificed herself in a game of dodgeball. Right? <laughs> so Susan then invites Monroe over to her place to thank him for his generous donation. And she gives him a present, which is a crystal heart. He makes a joke about how he's always wanted her heart, which is a little bit awkward, but Susan just laughs it off. I think she's so desperate for this kidney, she'll let anything fly. Well, it's not a swap. (laughs) Uh, He then gives Susan a present himself, which he made in high school, which is a binder full of Susan's pictures and items from school. And we have a clip. Oh, there's me on the debate club. Me in a bathing suit. Not easy to get. Hey, those bushes around your yard were really thick. Is this one of my old English papers? Yeah, you threw it away and I fished it out of the garbage. (sighs) My retainer? Yeah, I would have returned it, but I was too scared to talk to you. Isn't it funny how we're talking now? Uh, Yeah, really funny. (laughs) I mean, I think you would know that it's going to be a creepy stalker book when you see it. And it says Susan on it. It's like a binder, like a bright blue binder with Susan on it in like 3D glitter or whatever. It's... It's like that scene in Love Actually, but it's a binder instead of a video. And Susan's Kira Knightley, and she's looking at it, and she's like, "They're all of me." Yeah, <laughs> this is mental. Like you've only just re- you've only just seen the guy after years, and he gives you a binder of your name on it. What did you think? I was gonna- Which he's oh kept. my god! Like he's obviously kept this this entire time, and he's quite the stalker, taking photos of her from behind bushes, and he like roots through her trash, and then he pulls out something else that was in this little bag, which was her retainer. It just it's a little bit crazy because why is he showing her it? It's not like Joe Joe Goldberg showed Beck the jar of teeth. She had to come across the jar of teeth in you. Yeah. Like you don't show them the jar of teeth. 
this is her jar of teeth. Beefer's very passionate about this. You don't show them the teeth. What just, are you doing, man? Why is he showing her the creepy stalker book? What is he thinking? Because it's this it's should hers be something now. that she comes across. It's hers now. Oh, it's a present. He's like, oh, here's like a, it's a, to him. It's not a creepy stalker book. It's a memory book. Well, at least you got the retainer back. Let's see if it still fits. <laughs> Gross. So Susan has Renee and Lee over to tell them the good news about Monroe and his kidney, and they are shocked at the sheer kindness of this random man that Susan didn't even have to put out to. I love that it's Lee and Renee. Like, oh, we should probably give them something to do. Yeah, I know, like Lee and Renee. <laughs> like, we've got to give, we've got to make the actors earn their money. <laughs> the two people that I think probably hate Susan the most on that lane. Yeah, I well, yeah. I find it such a weird threesome. So they then see the binder, which Susan still remains blind to the binder's true meaning, but Lee and Renee help her see sense. <laughs> Renee's like, like, it's got your name on it in glitter. In glitter. <laughs> and they, like, they flick through it, and like, there's even a lock of Susan's hair. Yeah, that's a bit much. You used, used to be cute. What happened? Susan then eventually admits that it's a little stalkery, about 10%, she says, even though I would go more to the 85, 90 percent stalker. But the problem that Susan has is that if she doesn't take the kidney, she could wait, in her words, another six years. Even though actually at the beginning of this episode, we were only top three to four, but whatever. In times like this, people get overdramatic, especially Susan. So Susan's like, if I don't take this kidney, I could I could wait like another 50 years. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to Susan, the ends justify the means, I guess. Mm-hmm. She's like, I'll deal with the stalker. It's fine. I can just give me a kidney. Yeah. Well, I think that she's got a bit of confirmation bias here because she knows it's a bad idea. And then her friends convince her, yeah, it's a bad idea. And she's like, mm, maybe we shouldn't carry on as we are. Maybe this is a bit stalkery or stalky, as she says. Yeah. So in the final scene, Susan comes out of her flat and Monroe is stood there yelling, hey, neighbor. Oh, no. Neighbor. Apparently, Maxine is showing him a place in the building as Monroe thinks they're better off being near each other now they're back in each other's lives. I don't like that. No. Susan is straight up with the weirdo by telling him that he's coming across as a stalker, you know, a la Glenn Close in Fatal Attraction. Yeah. It's, it's starting to feel a little, um, that there's Close and then there's Glenn Close. Yeah, good reference. She tells him that it's all a bit stalky, which he then probably has the best line of the episode where he looks at her and goes, Starky, I'm giving you a kidney but yeah but <laughs> he's, he's so offended by the fact that she said stalking he's like bitch i'm giving you a kidney yeah but my dude ladies gaydies ladies it doesn't justify acting like a creep you don't give people things as a transactional value you Mm-mm. can't always you don't expect things from people just because you're doing a good deed otherwise it's not a good deed no it's not she then invites the stalker into her flat so that she can show him a picture of Mike and MJ. Oh, great. Give him a photo so that he has his next victim. Right. She tells him that there isn't room in this picture for anyone else. And once the operation is done, they go. They have to go their separate ways because she's married and she can't give him what he wants. I legitimately thought, is he going to bear this in mind and want to kill Mike? <laughs> like, <laughs> Gag. Well, there could be a room if we just scratch out that one. <laughs> so she tells Monroe that she will be honoured and forever grateful if he does still give her the kidney, but he now changes his mind and says he can't now that he knows that there would never be a chance between them. He was only doing this for that chance, which is actually quite sad for Susan. What a fucking loser creep. I, I've, I've actually felt really... It's, this is saying something, because it is Susan after all, let's face it, but I actually felt really bad for Susan in this moment, because I was like, you were so close to getting a kidney, and then for this man to almost at the last hurdle just say, yeah, I really can't do it. I know. I do feel bad for Susan, but my God, what... What a horrible guy. What a weirdo. Yeah. He apologises and leaves, ending Susan's story with her kidneyless once again. Yeah. 
we end the episode with Mary Alice talking to us about our pasts and we see Gabby in therapy talking about her past. So we see Keith looking at the photo of Charlie, Monroe walking past Susan in the hospital without talking to her, and Mike and Paul turning up to Zach's place in order to help him get better. Yeah. And that is the episode. Okay. Right, so let's move on to our next segment where Joel's going to give us the gayest and the straightest moment of the episode. Starting with the gayest moment, what do you have for gayest moment? My award for gayest moment... goes to Monroe for his creepy scrapbook of anything and everything that, he's, that has touched Susan. That's the gayest moment. It gives gay obsession. Well, Lee did mention that he has done similar things for Ryan Seacrest. Lion, what Ryan is with Seacrest. him? Ryan Seacrest. What is it with any gay in Ryan Seacrest? I don't know. I, why does this keep coming up in shows? He was very big in the 90s. Um, so, it, yeah, it, it's even backed up by Lee, guys. You heard it here and now. It gives gay obsession. Once, see, the thing is... There once, was glitter. Once gays... There was also glitter and a lock of hair. What's the lock of hair got to do with it? Gays love hair. Oh, my God. <laughs> the thing is, once gays get an obsession... It, it's hard for us to drop it. And B will back, back me up on this. He gets obsessed with people for six months at a motherfucking time. I, right? don't, I don't think that was that was necessarily a gay thing. Um, I, I think it is. And then what do you have for straightest moment? My award for straightest moment. I'm giving it to Keith. To Keith? Yeah. For preferring pizza over salmon. Yeah, that, that makes sense. It, it's like frat bro, isn't it? And now we move on to B's awards for best and worst parents. So who do you have for the best parent? So my award for... Best parent of the episode. I gave this to Mike for teaming up with his arch nemesis, Paul, to help his bio son, Zach. Yes, well done, Mike. It would have gone to Mike and Paul, but... Mm, I don't know. Paul that, gave me creepy vibes. That judgy face from Paul at the end where he's looking down on Zach, like he's so disgusted <laughs> with him. No, absolutely not. That's dad energy. But it also, really is. when he's just like, I want to keep this in the family, it gave me the vibe that he wants to strangle him. Off his son. I yeah, don't know. It, it gives like the godfather. So until I can be sure that he's not going to strangle his son, I'm just giving it to Mike. Yeah. Okay. And who do you have for the worst parent? So my word for. Worst parent of the episode. I gave this to Stella <laughs> for making the net and had grandkids put up with Frank and then also trying to blackmail her with money. Yeah, and also making them sit there with the dead body in the house for hours. Yeah, there was also that. Like, Although that was for gain in the long run. Yeah, but, but I get what you mean. He must have sat there for at least 16, 17 hours. Yeah, they should probably delete that photo. But then again, and they should have moved the body and taken another one. They should delete that photo and destroy that sofa. Why? It's a, it's not a bad sofa. It had a body sat on it for 16 hours. I would want that sofa gone as well. Yeah, but our sofa is the equivalent of having two dead bodies on it for hours at a time. Yeah, and I want to get rid of that sofa. True. <laughs> well, bravo, bravo, fucking bravo to everyone that won awards. That was season seven, episode 14, flashback, because there was a flashback. So if anyone has any questions, queries, comments and theories, where can they find us? You can find us on Instagram at Boyfriends Review. So I won't out you, but we got a message on Instagram, which was lovely, which said, Hi, I love you guys. Your podcast is currently my favourite ever. I love your banter and your silly ways and your reads and your references to RuPaul's Drag Race and all the stings. I'm almost done listening to season six and I can't wait for you guys to get to season eight because good Lord. Anyway, I love you. My favourite podcast ever? Yeah. Oh my God, there's so many good podcasts out there. I know, it's high praise. So <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I, What's their first name? It doesn't say. Their Instagram is just high, and then their Instagram handle. Oh, you have stunning lips. You do have stunning lips. I, like, that sounds stun. creepy, but that is all the photo is off. All right, Monroe right here. Sorry. <laughs> In the photo, you look gorge. Stun, girl. Stun. Like, you do You do look gorge. And no, no, like, I'm sorry, but 
kind of love your Instagram profile as well. I'm on your profile and I'm looking at it and like you, you look fierce. Well, you know who you are when you hear this. Oh, also f- forgive us because I've just gone onto your Instagram handle and just noticed that your pronouns are they them. So my apologies that we didn't notice that before we started talking. Oh, well, you could have told me. I don't just gone onto the profile. I'm so sorry. <laughs> We also have email, which is boyfriendsreview at outlook.com. And the artwork is done by our friend Louis, who you can find on Instagram at dotgridmonkdesign, where there's a link to his Etsy page and he does commissions. Join us next time when we'll be back in your ear holes with Season 7, Episode 15, Farewell Letter. See you then. See you then, guys. Bye. Bye.